Let's open our scriptures to Hebrews chapter 6. We're in the third sermon in a series, just a, the pause in Hebrews, which starts in chapter 5, verse 11, and goes through chapter 6, verse 20. Uh, Once a man bought a home with a tree in the backyard. It was winter and nothing at that time marked that tree as any different from any other tree. When spring came, the tree grew leaves and, and, and tiny pink buds. How wonderful, thought the man. A flowering tree. I'll enjoy its beauty all summer long. But before he had time to enjoy the flowers, the wind began to blow, and soon all the petals were strewn all over his yard. What a mess, he thought. This tree isn't any use after all. The summer passed, and one day the man noticed the tree was full of what looked like large green nuts. So he picked one and took a bite, and it was nasty, so he threw it to the ground What a horrible taste, he said. This tree is worthless. The flowers are so fragile, the wind blows them away. And its fruit is terrible and bitter. When winter comes, I'm cutting this tree down. But the tree continued to draw water from the ground and warmth from the sun. And in late fall, produced red, crisp apples. The author of Hebrews has just written to us about the the petal-strewn yard of apathy and the bitter nut of apostasy. But here he says, sometimes we have to wait patiently and perseverantly to see the true fruit of a person's life. Look with me at verse 9 of chapter 6. The author says, although we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, I feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love you have shown for his name and the service of the saints, as you still do. And we desire each of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things 
in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Father God, I pray that you will help me to preach this word well, that you will prepare the hearts of your children to hear it, to be encouraged, to strive even more fervently for that hope. In Jesus' name, amen. This is the end of this extended pause in the author's argument. He began to explain Jesus as the fulfillment of the Melchizedekian high priesthood back in chapter 5, verse 1 through 10. And then he realizes his he's lost his audience. His audience doesn't get the priesthood in, in, in the relation to to Melchizedek, so he pauses and he cautions them first against apathy. Apathy towards God's word is dangerous. We, we looked at that two weeks ago. And it's not only dangerous for many different reasons, it's dangerous for ultimately the, the, the main reason, which is it leads to apostasy. Apathy towards God's word is the gateway drug, as we talked about last week, to apostasy. Actually turning your back on Christ. And he tells them in that, those four, five verses that by doing so, that by turning their back on, on Christ, that by, by, by proclaiming what was once true as false... They're actually holding the gospel up for the world to mock. Tantamount to, as he calls it here, re-crucifying Christ. And scripture says that when you do that, there's a line that is crossed. The author pens those chilling words that it is impossible to repent of that. It's impossible to come back. And that shock and those overwhelming words that's still ringing in their ears, he writes this great encouragement for the aghast. Encouragement for the aghast. That's the word that I came up with that, that kind of helps put words to the feeling of leaving verse 8 in chapter 6. You leave aghast. If you look it up in the dictionary, you see aghast defined as struck with overwhelming shock, filled with sudden fright or terror, overwhelmed, thunderstruck. That's kind of how we leave verse 8. And perhaps that's how you were feeling last week, thunderstruck. Thunderstruck that the word of God actually contained that that type of, of warning. Perhaps you left here with a heavy heart. Perhaps you, you actually mulled over this week. Am, am I a wheat or a tear? Perhaps you left here asking the question, how can anyone ever have assurance of salvation after such things are said in Scripture? 
How can I ever be sure of my salvation? If those have been some of your thoughts this week, listen to verse 9 again. Though I speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Brothers and sisters of Southwest Harbor Congregational Church, I want you to hear it from my lips. Though I have said those things, I feel confident, beloved, of better things in your case. Things that belong to salvation. And that's what the rest of this chapter is all about. Giving you that, that, that foundation, that assurity, that, that assurance, that spiritual assurance and security that you are found in Christ Jesus. How can I say that? How can I say those words? How can the author of Hebrews turn on a dime after verse 8 and say verse 9? Well, I think it's simply because that our assurance of salvation is not rooted in us, but is rooted in God. It's in God's character. That's, that's, that's the first point that the, that the author, and actually the main point that the author wants to make in, in these verses, verses 9 through 20. Our salvation is rooted in the character of God. Look at verse 10. It says there, For God is not unjust. He goes right to the character of God, doesn't he? God is not unjust, so as to overlook your work. The author lets his audience and us know that ultimately the assurance that we have in our salvation is rooted in God's character. Let me say that again. Ultimately, the assurance we have in our salvation is not rooted in us, but in God's character. 17th century Scottish pastor Samuel Rutherford wrote this, the following, Our hope is not hung on such an untwisted threat as I imagine so, or it is likely. But the cable, the strong toe of our fastened anchor, is the oath and promise of him who is eternal truth. Our salvation is fastened with God's own hand and with Christ's own strength to the strong stake of God's unchangeable nature. Isn't that beautiful? That's in a nutshell what what the author of Hebrews is saying here. If you look at verses 13 through 18, he, he, he... starts to unpack this, that our salvation and our security is because of God's promise, right? It starts out there. If you, if you look right in verse 13, it says, when God made a promise. In verse 15, Abraham waited patiently to obtain the promise. Verse 17, when God desires to show us more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character. It's all about the promise. And and what he's talking about here in these verses is the author has in mind Genesis 22. You know Genesis 22. Even if you don't know Genesis 22, I know you know Genesis 22. It's when, when God asked Abraham to sacrifice the son of blessing, Isaac. And he goes up on Mount Moriah and he builds the, the pyre, the funeral pyre. And he puts, binds Isaac and he puts Isaac on there and he takes the blade and he raises it up and, and 
the muscle twitch is to go down, and God knows at that moment that Abraham was willing to do that. And he stops him, and you know the story. He says, don't sacrifice your son. There's a ram I've provided in the thicket, and so he sacrifices the ram. And after he does that, he says in, in verse 16 of chapter 22, he says, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this, because you are willing to do the ultimate for me, the ultimate sacrifice for me, and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. That's, that's the quote here in, in Hebrews 6. God makes a promise to bless him. And that promise cannot be broken because of two unchangeable things. That's what he's unpacking here. First, the oath that God took. That's 22.16. I swear by myself. He's taking an oath. God is taking an oath to bless Abraham. Oaths are very, very serious matters in Scripture. Our membership covenant that you take when you become a member is an oath. And God takes it seriously. And notice that our oath in our membership covenant is sworn to God. But God doesn't have anybody that he can swear above him. You always swear an oath to something more powerful than you. In those days, you would swear an oath to the king or your general or to God. But God doesn't have anybody that is more powerful than he, that he can look, look to. So he takes an oath to himself. And he swears to be faithful to bless Abraham. And that oath can never be broken. Which is the first reason the promise must be kept. But the second reason is God's character. Look at verse 18. It says, It is impossible for God to lie. He cannot say one thing and do another. We do that all the time. I mean literally all the time. I do that all the time. I'll leave it to your own heart. I say one thing, and then I'll do another. I can do that easily. My character, my sin nature, wants to do that. But God's nature is holy and perfect. He cannot say something and then not fulfill it. I mean, the, the classic proof text of this is Numbers 23, 19, right? In that context, you really have to understand what is going on there to understand what, what God is saying there. In Numbers 23, the, the Israelites are coming up from the south, coming into the Promised Land after 40 years, and they come into the, the territory of Moab, and there's a king there, Balak. And Balak looks at these four million people coming towards him, and he says, I've got to do something about this. So he sends way up to the north for a prophet that he's heard of called Balaam to come down. Balaam to come down and curse these people so that he will have victory over them so that he can stop them from taking over his land. And Balaam comes down, and you know the story. He tries again and again and again to curse, but God takes over his mouth, literally takes over his mouth and will not allow him to curse. Why doesn't he allow him to curse? Why can't one of God's prophets curse his people? 
Because God cannot go against what he has told, which is to bless this nation. So we have there in verse 19, Balaam goes to, to curse and out comes this. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he not speak and then not act? Does he not promise and then not fulfill? I have received a command to bless. I think that's Balaam talking. I have received a command to, to um, uh, God talking. I have received a command to bless. He has blessed and I cannot change it. That's Balaam talking. God cannot curse Israel because he has promised to bless Israel. And God cannot promise and then not fulfill. Okay, Blake, how does that apply to this? How, what about me? If you're here today and you have repented of your sins, if you know that you're a sinful person that needs forgiveness, and you have gone to Jesus Christ for that. Listen to the promises God makes to you. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. John 3. He who believes has eternal life. John 6. He who has the Son has life. 1 John 5. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans 10. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are found in Christ Jesus, Romans 8. And I could go on and on and on and on with the promises of God towards you because you've given your life to Christ. God has made a promise to you to save you, to, to finish the work he began in you, Philippians 1.6. God's made that oath. And if you know you need forgiveness and turn to Christ, you will be forgiven. If you believe that there are consequences for your sinfulness and you turn to Christ, he absorbed them all on the cross. If you know you are unrighteous, if you know you are unholy, if you know you that you're you're not right with God and you go to Jesus, you know what he does? He says, take my righteousness into your account. You're perfect. Even though you stumble and fall, God will carry you to completion. I think we saw that in spades when we went through Genesis, didn't we? All these stumbling patriarchs. And even though you will someday die, you know what the promise is that God will keep? Even if you die, if you trust Jesus, you will live. That's the promise. That is God's gospel promise in Christ to you, and it cannot be shaken. I appreciate, brother, Psalm 62. Cannot be shaken. Because God cannot lie. Our salvation assurance is firmly rooted in the character of God. You have to get that straight before we go on. You have to understand that. You have to believe that. Because that's really where your assurance comes from. J.C. Ryle wrote this. 
wonderful man of God. I bless God that our salvation in no way depends on our own words, but on God's promises. But then he goes on, listen to this. Same sentence. But I would never have any believer for a moment forget that our sense of salvation depends on the manner of our living. Do you feel the tension there? That's the tension that is in Scripture. That's the tension that is in our text today. Assurance of salvation is two-pronged, brothers and sisters. It is found in the promises and character of God and in the fruit of the repentance in your life. And that's what we'll spend the rest of our time on, the fruit of repentance. Brothers and sisters, there has to be fruit of repentance in your life. Richard Phillips wrote this, The only way Christians have joy in their salvation and full assurance of hope is through the practical godliness that flows from our relationship from Christ. Al Mohler wrote this more pointedly, One of the most important catalysts for spiritual confidence, spiritual assurance, is spiritual fruitfulness. Our faithful activity as Christians fuels our assurance. You see, for any sense of assurance in your salvation, there must be visible fruit in your life. You just can't get around it in Scripture. You can't get around it in our text. There cannot just be petals blown off your tree and bitter fruit hanging from your branches. There must be some crisp red apples. And the author points to three of those in our text. The first one is good works. Look with me at verse 10. He says, though we speak this way, and in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Verse 10, for God is not unjust, there's the character, so as to overlook your work. Your work. If you flip ahead, and I encourage you to do this, maybe one or two pages to Hebrews chapter 10, the author has in mind specific things in his audience. These works that he's referring to here, he's later going to enumerate, and I want us to read them together. Look with me at verse 32 in chapter 10. This is what the author is thinking of back in chapter 6. He says, But recall the former days. When after you were enlightened, after you came to faith, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. We'll stop there. These people had suffered for the sake of the gospel. Sometimes publicly, it says. These people were not ashamed to be associated with those who were persecuted. They didn't distance themselves from the community that Bonhoeffer is talking about in our book together. They did not abandon them. They didn't distance themselves from them. They didn't refuse to acknowledge them as friends. If any of you have seen the movie Silence or read the book, better yet, 
You know that there's a character in that book and in that movie that whenever the Japanese persecution comes down hard on the community of faith, this character always abandons the faith. But you see him come back when the persecution lets up. When persecution comes, he goes away. and He even gives up people and fingers them. But when the persecution lets up, he comes back in a contrite, humble, confessional way. It's a great book, great movie to, to really grapple with and wrestle with. When is apostasy apostasy? But that's another sermon. But these people did not run away. They didn't abandon. They'd even visited those in prison. They even, they even went a step further and visited them. And they finally show their faith in that it affected them economically. It says there that they allowed their property to be plundered. They had displayed visible evidence of a real change in their life by their continued good works under persecution. And the scripture says that is real fruit. That's red crisp apples. And the challenge for us and each one of us is different when it comes to the faith. For some of you, it's reputation. I know somebody here prayed about their idol of reputation. It is for a lot of us, I fear. We want to protect our good name and sacrificing Christ's. A couple questions that get at this idol is, are you willing to be seen as a fanatic for Christ? Are you willing to be labeled a radical? Or how about, are you willing to talk about your faith in, in biblical terms? I'm a born-again Christian. Or is it safer to say, yeah, I'm Christian. Are you willing to associate with the body of Christ? I remember a real test of this very congregation came really early in my pastorate here. A year or two after I got here, we had a... And, and I praise God for my own ignorance and naivete. I, we had a, a, a missionary at the time who would come up and speak on college campuses and we had him come up and we held it at the high school and it was, a, it was about homosexuality and homosexual marriage. I had no idea it would draw the crowd it did at the high school. And the, the vehemence that was there. A few of you remember that, that were here. Couldn't even really have a, a, a civil debate. And it was a real test. Are you going to stay? Because the island's against us in this area, guys. Some people leave. So some for its reputation, for others its lifestyle. I love how Tim Keller gets at this. He says, God just doesn't want your life. He wants your dreams. And that is true. What are you, what are you dreaming of? And Al, the big one in America is retirement. You want the dream of retirement. This is my time now. I have six Saturdays and a Sunday. 
But you know what? God wants seven Sundays. He does. For some, it's economic. This is where the rubber meets the road on a daily basis, on a weekly basis with us. Will you continue to live out the gospel when it threatens your promotion? Or when it threatens a possible salary increase? Or threatens your job? Or will you close your mouth and live a camouflaged Christian life? For others, it's time. This is where Bonhoeffer's book really, really struck me. He writes this, We must be ready to allow ourselves to be interrupted by God. Do you allow yourself to be interrupted by God? Do I allow myself to be interrupted by God? He writes, He will constantly be crossing our paths and canceling our plans by sending us people with claims and petitions. It is a strange fact, he goes on, that Christians, even ministers, frequently consider their work so important and urgent that they will allow nothing to disturb them. And he concludes by saying, do not assume that our schedule is our own to manage, but allow it to be arranged by God. I think I've told one of you, or maybe a couple of you, that the, the post office has become hard for me because I just want to go down, get my mail, come back, keep working. It never happens that way. You know, it's, it's either 10 to 40 minutes and it's right there I could throw a rock to it. And I feel interrupted. I gotta get back, I've got things to do, I've got goals to reach, I have to be so and so, I have to be this far in my sermon by Wednesday, for Thursday, by Friday, otherwise I'm in trouble. I give up time with my family then, this person is talking to me about their needs, this is cutting into my family time on Saturday, Sunday. Reputation, lifestyle, economy, time, No matter what it is, there has to be visible fruit in your life. Secondly, he mentions another evidence of salvation, that is love for one another. In verse 10, he goes on and says, God is not unjust so as to overlook your work, but the love you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. They're they're still doing this. They love one another. They're, They're showing love for one another. This is, this is one of Jesus' last lessons to us, isn't it, brothers and sisters, in the upper room? Yeah, he had one final night with his disciples, and what did he do? He put a towel around himself, and he washed their feet. And he said, As I have done to you, do to one another. That way, the world will know you're my disciples. How is the world to know that we are followers of Christ? By the love we show for each other. That's it. Our church covenant that you can read in the song, in the hymn book in, in front of you on the first page it tells it 
It's about really four things, four ways we love each other. We promise to walk together, it says, as Christian brethren. To be together. To spend time together. How can you love somebody that you spend absolutely no time with? How can you possibly do that? I mean, that's the whole point of devotions, right? There's a wonderful little booklet that I bring out every once in a while back there called uh, God's Home, My Heart, I think it's called. And there's a wonderful image in there about, you know, God is just sitting by the fireplace every morning as we run down the stairs and run out into our day. And he's just sitting there wanting to spend time with Blake. But Blake is really busy, so he gets up, does his face, hands, teeth, and hair, and he runs down. He runs out the door because Blake's got stuff to do. Like, how am I going to know the lover of my soul if I don't just spend time with him? The same thing is about with us. How are we supposed to love each other if we don't spend any time with him? If we don't walk with each other? Second thing in our covenant is worship together. What we're doing right now. What we're doing right now should trump everything in your life. I'll just say it. It trumps everything in your life. It's that critical, brothers and sisters. It's the most powerful thing we do is come together and praise God. He also has promised to pray with each other in our covenant. If you love somebody, you're going to be thinking of them, right? When they're going through difficult things, you're, they're on your mind. You know, your, your brother, sister, mother, father, if they're in, in pain in some area of their life, you're thinking about that. God says, turn that thinking into prayer. Bring it to me. That's why we pray through the directory. We encourage each other. Take the directory and use the directory. Pray a prayer uh, every page, three people on the, pray, on the page, just pray for them. Next day, three more people. Next day, turn the page. Pray for each other. Finally, our covenant says sacrifice for each other. It says t- by time, talent, and treasure. It's clear in Scripture that love begins with each other, Right? Love starts here. And to the degree that it does, we gain assurance of our faith. And finally, the third thing the author brings out is the fruit of patient perseverance. Patient perseverance. I want to read to you from the diary of John Wesley. Very simple. He writes this. Sunday morning, May 5th preached at St. Anne's, was asked not to come back anymore. Sunday evening, May 5th, preached at St. John's. Deacon said, get out and stay out. Sunday morning, May 12th, preached at St. Jude's. Can't go back there. Sunday morning, May 19th, deacons called a special meeting and said I couldn't return. Sunday evening, May 19th, preached on the street, kicked off the street. Sunday morning, May 26th, preached in a meadow. Chased out of the meadow as a bull was turned loose during the service. Sunday morning, June 2nd, preached out of the edge, at the edge of town. Kicked off the highway. Sunday evening, June 2nd, preached in a pasture. 
10,000 people came out to hear me. Perseverance. Jesus says in Matthew 24, speaking about the tribulation when real persecution is going to come worldwide to the church, he who stands firm to the end will be saved. Assurance comes by finishing well, brothers and sisters. Assurance comes by finishing well. Perseverance is not only absolutely critical element of our assurance, it's perhaps the most elusive one because it's really a circular argument, isn't it? Pastor, how can I know I'm, I'm persevering to the end when it's not the end yet? Because it's not something you can be sure of until the end of your life, right? But the encouragement to persevere is woven not only throughout this text but throughout Scripture. Look with me at verse 11. The author encourages the audience to earnestly persevere until the end. In verse 12, he encourages them to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. In verse 15, we're seen as Abraham having patiently waited obtained the promises. But perhaps the greatest encouragement in this whole text is, is the last two verses. Verses 19 and 20. The author concludes there by bringing both God's work and our work together. And it's a beautiful picture of assurance. And it's a nautical picture. The readers of this letter, the hearers of this letter 2,000 years ago, would, would know exactly what the author had in mind. Because he uses the word anchor and he uses the word forerunner. Every harbor in ancient times, there was a huge, immovable stone set at the water's edge. In Latin, they were called anchoria. These stones were placed there because until shortly after this book was written, actually, ships didn't have rudders. They were steered by oars. So they had trouble getting into harbors, into safe harbors. So a ship that wanted to enter the safety of a harbor, they would lower a man down into a rowboat, and then they would lower a rope to him, and he would row into the harbor and attach that rope to that anchoria. And then the men on the ship would grab that rope and pull the ship into the harbor. That's the picture that the author and that the Holy Spirit wants to leave with us. Christ is our forerunner, isn't he? He's done all the hard work of securing our salvation. He wasn't lowered into a boat, but he was raised on a cross taking our punishment, dying in our place. But he made it to the safe harbor of heaven by rising again on the third day and ascending into heaven. And it says he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. So he's not only our forerunner, but he's also our anchor. Because the rope is tied to him and it extends out to us. 
And what we're supposed to do in our life is to hold on to that rope and work diligently in our faith. We don't, not in a works righteousness type of way, but in a faith type of holding on. All those who have placed their trust in Jesus Christ stand on that ship outside the safe harbor holding on to that rope and our part is to pull, to work hard spiritually. There's no such thing as let go and let God. That's silly. If you have it on a bumper sticker or on your, on your refrigerator, pull it off. There's nothing in scripture that says that. Paul tells us to diligently and earnestly do what in Philippians? Pound out our faith with fear and trembling. Right? Hand over hand, pulling on that rope, holding on to Christ. Peter says the same thing in his second letter. He says, make every effort. Right? Then he gives that wonderful golden chain adding your faith to goodness and goodness to knowledge and knowledge, self-control and self-control, perseverance and to perseverance, godliness and to godliness, brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness, love. And then he ends it by saying, this makes your calling and election sure. There's your assurance. Is our salvation by grace alone and not works? Absolutely. Absolutely. Does your salvation take holy sweat on your part? Absolutely. That's why the picture is so helpful in understanding the whole of Scripture where assurance of salvation is concerned. Those who let go of the rope and apostatize never make it into the safe harbor. Those who through apathy are just holding on to the rope never make it into the safe harbor. Only those who pull hard and consistently over their entire life. Only those who, by hand over hand effort, make it safe into the harbor. Only those who pull and pound out their faith with fear and trembling make it into the harbor. Only those who persevere in pulling on that rope attached to the forerunner and our anchor, Jesus Christ, make it into the harbor. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Spirit, use this in our life. Help us. Spirit, give us the perseverance and desire to persevere and to work hard to hold on to that rope. In Jesus' name, amen.